Okay, this is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. I am your host, B-Magic. As always, I got my brother, Noise, with me. And today we are joined by a very special guest representing a lot of different places, uh, South Sudan, Saskatchewan, Toronto, who's involved in a lot of different arts from music to modeling. Uh, we're very happy to have you on the show, Amani El Fede. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, we, we were talking a little bit about it just before we started recording, but um, yeah, how has uh, you know COVID and the whole pandemic kind of adjusted how you're approaching your art and your songwriting? Uh, yeah, so we, as I was mentioning uh, before we started this, um, when COVID hit, it's uh, basically all of the projects that I had going uh, from the Junos to all the shows that I had lined up for the U.S., everything shut down. So there was this whole anxiety, you know, panic uh, thing that was going on. So what I decided to do is just kind of take it easy, um, follow the same process that I did with other albums, which is take a few months, just kind of write non-music stuff and just kind of focus on my thoughts, focus on feelings. And um, hopefully once this whole pandemic ends, going to be going back into studio with a lot to say. Yeah, it's it's it, you, you don't realize how much you miss it until you're away from it. Like there's one thing to say about, you know, breaks that we put upon ourselves, like after we recorded or something or put out an album and then you're just like, I kind of need a little bit of a break. But when you actually want to go and you feel like you have a lot to say, <laughs> Like, and you can't do it, that's that's hard. Like the other day, like the pandemic hasn't been really good for my creativity. Um, but the other day I, f I finally wrote a verse and it was the first time I've written something in a while. And then I just like took my mic into the closet, recorded it and I was like, man, I really missed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different dynamic for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as we as we do like to do with the show, we'll, we'll come back around to talking about music, but we do like to take it back to the beginning and yes, we want to sir. learn a little bit more about your story. Like, how did your family and you first come to Canada? And what were some of the circumstances around that? Well, uh, my family, uh, I was born in South Sudan. Um, back then, it was called Sudan. Um, what happened was there's a huge civil war that happened. Uh, my family had to basically escape from the country to Uganda. And then in 1992, we got uh, refugee status to come to Canada. Um, so we landed in Saskatchewan, of all places in the world, um, in the middle of November. So that's wow. a little history of getting here. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, growing up in, it was, it was honestly like the most strangest thing, going from like the jungle to, you know, tundra, minus 52 degree weather. And we didn't even know what snow was. So that was kind of the start of the journey. And that's where mm. I decided to do music and from there kind of worked on building my self-esteem. And at 16, I decided Saskatchewan doesn't really have enough for me in terms of building a career. So I moved to Toronto from there. How how old were you when you left uh, South Sudan? And do you still have memories of, of growing up there? Um, so I was three years old when I left. Um, I don't really remember very much. Um, the way my memory works is like, literally, I remember the airport in Toronto, mm. uh, sorry, in Regina, and going up to the window, and there was snow. So it almost feels like that's the beginning of my life, Yeah. <laughs> looking at the snow and saying, okay, what is that? <laughs> Can you share some of the, like, the stories that your parents might have told you? Because obviously you were very young, but like, how was that transition? Like you just said, you went from the jungle to the snow, and then, you know, coming to a whole new place, but then having to kind of restart over again so uh, <laughs> could you share some of those stories growing up yeah um so i guess first thing was the snow that was something that we had to like really understand i, I remember uh, just looking at it and i remember um our our hosts when they came to the to the airport and we were in dresses because we didn't know that about cold when they said cold we thought like okay, it's going to be like minus 20 or sorry, yeah. like 20 degrees. And we're like, okay, that, that shouldn't be so bad. A dress will be suitable. But when they came on, they're like, it's November. It's like minus 30. That means you're like almost 50 degrees lower than what you ever thought. So yeah, that it was a huge adjustment. I remember um, the first day I got to go play in the snow was uh, a bit bizarre. I was like, I don't even know what to do with it. Like you walk on it and you're like, <laughs> falling into it so there was that um the other major transition was the, the language um because in uh in south sudan the languages that we wound up speaking were kakwa which is uh my travel language um arabic the arabic juba version 
um, and Swahili. So when we came, nobody really spoke English in my family. So suddenly we're thrust into this environment where everybody speaks English. So I guess it's kind of comedic, but the first few years was us trying to pronounce things properly um, and also trying to find the names for certain things. So I remember we learned how to say duck. So, and the ducks were at the park, but we didn't know how to say park. So when we wanted to go to the park, we'd say, uh, let's go duck. For other people, they probably thought we were the most craziest people ever, but it's like for us, we, we didn't know the word for it. So we just use whatever word was like similar to correlate what, uh, what we're trying to say. So yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it, like, it, it's funny you said that because like anytime like I've been like travel obviously in, under different circumstances, but when whenever I've traveled and been in a foreign country, I still like to communicate with people, even though we may not have the same language, right? And and it yeah. all it all it, you literally just go back to the words that you do know, so you you understand certain things are certain words, so you kind of just try to make sense of it with the words you have, right? So I can I can yeah. totally relate to that sense, and th that's the way you learn, right? One one word at a time, and then you formulate your sentences and. Uh, it's crazy how 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 quickly the the mind can pick it up when you are in those kind of dire circumstances. Yeah, yeah, it's like almost you're forced to learn as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, has, your, has your family ever tried to fill in some of the gaps to to explain or share what South Sudan was like when they were growing up? So, it's it's a really difficult kind of thing to try to fill in the gaps with my parents. Um, with my my parents, they suffered a lot of PTSD, to be completely direct with it. Mm -hmm. um, so what I find, especially speaking with my, my father, he doesn't really like to talk about it. Um, it brings back a lot of bad memories for him. So usually when we're younger, we would avoid the subject mm -hmm. um, unless he wanted to speak about it. And a lot of the stories that he wound up telling us... Um, I mean, there are some nice, silly childhood stories, you know, when you're showering and maybe someone forgot to get you hot water, so now you're bathing in cold water or something like that. There's little stories like that where we could laugh, but a lot of them were just um, the stories about going from one village to another. Um, I know there were a lot of really bad uh, situations that happened. Uh, there was one place, one story that my dad told me where we were staying in a church at one point and he just had a feeling that there was just something off about being in that church. And I was still a baby and, you know, he said, okay, let's just grab what we can and let's get out of here now. Mm -hmm. And we ran, my mom was complaining to him, wondering why did you have to wake us up in the middle of the night for that? And he just said he had a feeling. And then not even an hour later, um, basically the soldiers came in and they, they burnt the church down. And wow. a lot of the people that were sleeping in there, they died. So it's just a lot of dire stories like that that uh, that come. So mm -hmm. it's all choppy when when my parents give a, give us you know stories. It's usually choppy. There's no real like this is uh, like sequencing or anything like that. It's just whatever they tell us. It's just whatever we take in and listen. Was it a challenge for them? Uh, you like you mentioned the language barrier being one thing, but you know finding work, uh, housing, all that sort of stuff like. Was that difficult for, for yourself and for your parents to kind of make that adjustment to? Yes, it was difficult for everybody um, mm -hmm. in different ways. So um, for my mom, uh, what was difficult is that she already had two kids coming to this country. Um, there was no family, no friends. There wasn't anyone really that could help her. And she was so young. By the time she got here, she's maybe in her early 20s, like 21, 22. She wasn't really... Uh, you know, fully matured into a woman yet. So she didn't have a family that she can call. Nobody spoke this is the same language as her except for my father. So, you know, she only had us kids and herself. And it was very difficult for her to kind of, you know, socialize and, and you know, the responsibilities of children is already, already difficult enough. So that's that was her biggest struggle. And for my father, that one is a huge struggle because when he came, He's in South Sudan, he's educated, but here he's considered no education, nothing. Mm -hmm. So he started working off as a, as a dishwasher. Um, and in getting that job, it was that's where the racism started to show. Uh, that's where people were. We learned what racism really was. We didn't mm -hmm. even know we come from a country where everyone's black. And now <laughs> we're here where 
nobody looks like us. We were one of the first immigrant black families to be in the city. So it wasn't like we had anyone else that we could call to, to say, hey, what, did we, what to expect? So from being a dishwasher, there was a lot of racism there. He wound up leaving that, uh, was working as a janitor at one point. Um, and one of the stories that I remember from him, the, the strongest is like now he's working for the city of Regina as a, a, a supervisor for the waterworks division there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way he got there was pretty much fighting racism. When he applied for the position, you know, they didn't think that he was anything. So they gave him the janitor position. And he, he was always studying, learning, trying to get more experience to get to the top. And at some point, he was actually more experienced than everybody else that was in that division. So when he went to apply for the supervisor position, they kind of just overlooked him. And they wound mm-hmm. up picking someone who didn't even have their high school education over someone who has spent years and years and years learning and studying so it became kind of a big, tough issue for him. He had to go and take it to HR. It turned out to be a big, you know, uh, thing that happened there. So now he finally, fast forward, he finally is in that position. But what he finds is he still gets situations where, say, they have a new hire who didn't know that he's black. And he's telling them, hey, you need to do this and this and this like that. Mm-hmm. And he'll get something like, oh, well, I don't take directions from a black man. Where's wow. the supervisor? So he deals with a lot of racism on a day-to-day basis, just working with the, the government, essentially. So mm-hmm. it's, um, and it's, it's not just now. It's been from the moment that he landed into the city, it's always being treated differently. And I mean, my story with racism is a lot different than what he has. And, you know, with my siblings and my brothers, it's a lot different. But I think for me, I think my father was the one that got a really big, like the blunt end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, with, like obviously with refugee status, you kind of just have to go where they kind of put you, right, and where you're being hosted. Uh, but like, uh, like obviously your father worked a lot of tough jobs to get to the point where he is. And on this podcast, we tend to hear that story quite a lot, where you have a certain level of education back home, and that isn't doesn't really translate to Western culture, yeah. even though some of that education over there might even be ten times harder than over mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's sad because we hear that so often on this show. And uh, but did your father ever in the midst of, you know, obviously being in Regina, Saskatchewan, it's not the most diverse places that we have in Canada. Did he ever feel like he wanted to just get up and see another uh, part of Canada? And also, was there any sort of like Sudanese culture within Saskatchewan at that time or even now? Um, okay, so to answer the, the first question, so um, yeah, we he wanted to leave a lot of times. Uh, many times he's even said, like, we could just pack up and go back to South Sudan. He'd rather deal with the war than here sometimes. Mm. Um, but what wound up happening, and even when I talk to him now, I ask him, where would you want to go in the world? He's like, here, I want to be here in Regina, Saskatchewan. I don't want to leave. And I was always like, what? But back then, it was like we'd drive off to Calgary and see what it's like there. We drove off to Vancouver to see what it's like in Vancouver for a week or two. Um, at one point, Winnipeg, Thunder Bay. We went across Canada by car. And oh. every time we go, it's like, nah, I'm not going to live here. I'm going back to Saskatchewan. So we <laughs> go back to Saskatchewan and, you know, then he'll come up with the next idea. Oh, now we're going to go try this city. We go to that city. Two days later, he's like, nah. Let's just stay here. We're not going to go anywhere else. And um, sorry, the the second question. Um, so for the Sudanese culture, so we were one of the first, I guess you could say. Um, there was another family who they they were South Sudanese, but they were more Ugandese than they were South Sudanese. So back then, being like the first people, that was like 27 years ago, and then you go now. And now they have one massive group and then you have smaller groups now. And then you even have a South Sudanese church. Now you have buildings. They, they've, you know, gotten buildings and they call it, this is the South Sudanese Association. You have like four or five presidents of different groups and you have a women's group and now you have a children's group and the children's group is now going to like going to be divided into two different groups. And you have like the South Sudanese university students group over here. So just like from 27 years ago to being like one of the first families to now, it's like 
this, the community boomed. But in terms of the city of Regina, in the beginning, first like 10, 10, 15 years, they weren't very open to the idea of even having it. It wasn't really recognized. Nobody really said anything. They just kind of categorized us as you guys are African, so you stay in the African division. But now it's mm -hmm. like when you say South Sudanese, people know because there's a community there. Yeah. As time has passed, the community has been able to flourish and just like really establish themselves there. Yeah, exactly. Growing up, what was what was school like for you? Like you mentioned <laughs> language being a big barrier, but, you know, was there like was were there any particular subjects that you gravitated towards or, you know, there's sometimes people say, you know, there's a teacher or a particular subject that kind of made school easier for them even though school as a whole might have been a challenge. So did you ever come across anything like that? For me, in terms of elementary and high school, it wasn't really like I had a teacher that really stood out, uh, per se. Um, in terms of, like, subjects and stuff, I know music for sure was always number one. There was Wherever there was a music class, I was always there. Um, but other subjects that I kind of really picked up on was French, um, that was like one of my favorite classes to to be in. Um, and surprisingly, at some point there was like math at some point. Um, going into high school, it was uh, psychology was my big one uh, that I really loved to do. Um, and yeah, then coming to Toronto, it was just music, digital production. That was the only class I wanted to be in. I was like skipping math class to go to the music classroom and my music teacher's yelling at me saying, go back to math class. And so that was kind of like my high school days here. I had read uh, that you uh, like you like first fell in love with music or when you heard Celine Dion. So can you kind of just tell that story of just like how that happened? How, like, you know, how your family stumbled upon Celine Dion. And just uh, mm -hmm. after that, can you kind of just share like uh, how like. Did your parents ever, like, was there Sudanese music or was it just, like, what type of music was playing in, like, your early years? In the household. Yeah, in that household. Okay. Um, so the music that was playing early years um, to the point where, like, literally, sometimes even when I'm sleeping, I dream about it, is um, lo, uh, Loketo, Sukus music, which uh, comes mostly from Congo, Congo region. Um, Yondo Sister was one of my favorite artists, uh, Loketo, Superstars, all of them, Kanda Bongo Man. Uh, many people, when we say Kanda Bongo Man, they're, you know, in Africa, they're like, yay. <laughs> Those songs were the ones that, like, literally defined my childhood up until, um, up until I was about 10 years old. And then, you know, started with hip hop and pop music and all of that. Um, and then going to the moment with Celine Dion, um, it's kind of like a silly story, but me and my sister were playing in the living room, running around. My little brother's on the like, was on the couch somewhere, and we're playing lava, so yeah. <laughs> jumping on couches and trying not to touch the ground. And you know, my mom's yelling at us from the kitchen. And I just remember like the TV was playing, and we didn't have cable; we just had the one channel, CBC. And Celine Dion came on the stage on on the screen, and she was singing a song. And I have no idea what she was singing. It was in French. And at that time, I didn't speak even English. So I had no idea what she was singing. I had no idea what she was actually doing. I didn't even know how to express that at, the, at that age of what it was that was actually happening. But I just remember I froze. I lost the game of lava because I froze <laughs> and I was like not even paying attention. And I just stared at her. I don't know for how long, but I was like, that is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like playing lava is great, but I think that's where I'm supposed to be. And that's how the whole musical journey started. And that was at four years old. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like something you couldn't even, that's the power of music. That's the beauty of it. It's like, you don't even have to know what the other person is saying, but just the emotion that they're conveying and you can connect with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really intense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you ever participate in any choirs or anything like that in order, like how did you first develop or, or hone your singing abilities um so first first what what happened was when I was five um my mom started to dance true so that kind of got my toe kind of on the stage so I can start you know learning how the stage works um at that time I wasn't even actually singing to be honest when I was like five six seven years old I wasn't even singing I was just you know admiring it and just like watching it and I think it's mostly because my English wasn't even that great 
So I didn't even know like what to do. Um, but by the time I was nine, that's when I started actually really pushing to start singing. And um, that's also when the uh, going back to the other question about the South Sudanese community, that was one of the first South Sudanese, you know, choirs was formed um, at around the time when I was nine, 10 years old. And that's when I started saying, OK, you know what, let me try and sing in this. And I wound up becoming the lead of the choir. And that's when I said, OK, I think I I've got this. Let me continue and I started writing out more um, so I was in that choir um, I joined the high school choir but I found like the type of music we were singing was more you know like choral like just not not right for me so mm-hmm. I wound up leaving that and just kind of working on my on my own uh, from there who were some of like the like obviously you had mentioned you fell in love with it kind of when you saw Celine Dion but who were some other artists who really sparked something within you where you were like let me, I kind of want to sound like this person or just take little tidbits from the way they are and kind of do your own little twang with it. Who were, who were some other artists that kind of you fell in love with? Um, one of the biggest, MIA. Mm, like yeah, that yeah. was, she was the catalyst to, to the type of music that I was doing just because it, it was like, I, I even remember the iconic moment when I saw her on TV. It was, uh, I think it was Much Music. And the music, um, one of her music videos showed up. And I was like, wow, like she's, you know, not white, first of all. Like, uh, best way to put it was that she wasn't white, but she was doing music that wasn't exactly part of her culture. I learned later that she's Sri Lankan. So I'm like, that doesn't, the music she's doing doesn't sound like what she's, what she looks like. And I have this gravitation towards music that, you know, whenever I was watching who was actually singing, they didn't look like me. So I was like, this woman is doing something different and bringing all these sounds from different cultures. At one point, she's talking about bringing Brazilian music in there. You have Sri Lankan music, you have everything being mashed up. And I was like, that is what I want to do. And she became kind of like the top idol next to Celine Dion. Was it was there a, was a part of that kind of just like because, as we all know, MIA, she is very she's she has a mainstream sound and something you can dance to, but it is also has a very political undertone to everything she's saying. Is that something that you, you saw yourself doing and something that you would want to do at that age? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I remember the song sun showers that she did and watching that video and hearing the words that she did. The beat was so good that I played it once in my house and my mom, my mom was actually dancing to it. And I was like, okay, so my mom can dance to it. And I played it for some of my friends and they were like, this is a cool, cool song. And I'm like, well, you guys are Canadian. You'd be considered Canadian. You guys like this beat. So I was like, wow, this is amazing that, you know, it doesn't matter which background you're coming from. You can still enjoy this beat. It's still mainstream in the sense that everyone can enjoy it, but it's still so different that, you know, it has this like personality to it. And then I would remember one day, I think this is when Google started actually really you know taking into account lyrics and stuff so I I googled the lyrics and I just read the lyrics and I was like she's talking about something really important here Mm -hmm. she's talking about you know the abuses of women she's talking about like how women get trapped in certain marriages and how they want to escape and all this stuff and I was like this is important this is important she's putting in a, a very important message in the music that she's doing so yeah that's something I really admired about her I read you you built a home studio at age 12. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because that's crazy because I feel like the home studio wave didn't really pick up until like 2010. And like now it's pretty easy to do it. But to do it at 12, like especially at that Uh, era of like it wasn't as easy to get music equipment as it is now. So like how did you do that? And just did you have any help putting that together? Like what went into building your home studio? First of all, my parents didn't like the whole idea of me doing music at all. They they hated the idea. They didn't even to, even now they don't even want to talk about it. Um, so when I was at that age, around 11, 12 years old, I was desperate. I was like, I really need to get some stuff recorded. I need to get this career going. And I tried to go to a recording studio, but you know, at 12 years old, you kind of need parental permission for a lot of things. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was like, okay, so I can. I tried to call some aunts and everything, but I got caught. 
you know, one aunt would say, oh, I'm going to come pick you up. And my mom would be like, why are you going to pick my daughter up? What's going on? And mm-hmm. so I wasn't allowed to go to studio. So at one point I was like, okay, I have, at that time, you know, I was working selling chocolates door to door. Like I have like 20 bucks. Um, let me go to the store and see what I can find. And I found a microphone, like one of those nowadays, if you look at it, it's like, it's the cheesiest, terrible microphone ever. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't even a dynamic microphone. It was like a conference microphone, but I'm like, this is all I can afford right now. So I mm. took that and I had a computer and I had to uh, like fix the computer, take it all apart. You know, those big boxy ones, yeah. take it apart, put in a CD drive and like do all sorts of stuff just to modify it. And then I remember one day I had to like save up $75. It took me a whole month of selling chocolates to save up money <laughs> to buy a program to record. And that's how the beginning of the studio came. Even with the, the pop filter, I had to get like my nylons and <laughs> got that over there you know, wrapped it, I taped it onto there. I put like egg cartons on the wall and I knew if my mom was coming down, I'm like pulling the egg cartons down and Mm. pretending that I was making some art project. Um, Whenever, you know, she came down and she's probably, today's day, she probably thinks I'm weird sitting in that room with egg cartons on the floor with scissors (laughs) looking up like, "Um, I'm making an art project for school. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how the studio came about. And, uh, and in the nighttime, I was I was usually recording or producing or whatever. Usually like between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. you'd find me in there. That's that's amazing because it's like I feel like a lot of us can really relate to that because <laughs> I, I remember I never showed my music to my parents for years. It wasn't until like, you know, it, it got a little bit well known and then somebody had told my parents. Right. And I, I know the same is <laughs> for noise and a lot of people that have been on the show, show as well. It's. It's literally because it, it's so frowned upon in, in a lot of our cultures, right? It's like, okay, we did all this work to bring you to the Western world, go to school and become doctors, right? So it's like <laughs> when you tell them you want to become a musician, it's like it's like putting a stake in their heart, right? Yeah, so, but it's like, it's, true. it's but the thing is when you really love something, how like you know it's it's easy for other people to tell you no. But for you to shut your own dreams down is 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 one of the hardest things to do. So it's like exactly. it, it doesn't even like when when you say like you did all that stuff with the computers, like especially at that age, it's so impressive to see. But I believe it because when you're when you are so passionate about something, no, no, nobody can tell you no. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, I, yeah. I'm just happy that, you know, you've stuck with it and uh you know, it, it, for any kid listening to this, I hope that's an inspiration that, you know, just take the things you have. If you really want to do this, figure it out. And then, you know, obviously the levels are going to grow. Eventually you're going to get into studios with engineers and this, that. But yeah. you have to start with a shitty little mic you bought on your <laughs> own and uh, whatever program yes. you have and, and just get it done. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you meant you mentioned you moved to Toronto when you were 16. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Like what went into that? And you know, at 16, that's a that's still a very young age. Like you mentioned, at 12, it was tough to even get permission to go to a studio. But at 16, to make the decision to move to the other side of the country, you know, that that those are big decisions to make. So can you just explain a little bit about kind of what was your thought process at the time? Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually pretty dark. Um, with my parents, like I, like I said, they, they were completely against doing music. Uh, what they were expecting from me was probably just to become a doctor or a nurse or something and get married and have children, the grandchildren that they've been waiting for forever. <laughs> for. Um, so what happened with, with me is that like I really, really wanted to do the music. Um, I didn't even know about Toronto in that case. Um, there was a lot of like uh, tensions going on with me and my my parents, and you know, just things were just not working out. And then my aunt wound up being trans uh, brought over to Canada uh, as a refugee with her children to Toronto. And so my dad immediately, you know, I told you he was let's go check out the city. The mm-hmm. moment he found out my my aunt was here, um, she he basically was like, pack up the car, let's go. We're gonna go and visit your aunt. The moment I came here. There was this vibe to the city. I felt like there was a lot of like culture. There was a lot of there was there's something about the city that just called to me and said that this is where you need to be in order to succeed. And at that time I was 13. I, I didn't even really understand what was the calling. I just thought that's where I have to be. Um, so when things started getting really tough with my parents, 
I called my aunt one day and I'm like, hey, um, can I go and stay with you? And she didn't even think about it. She was like, okay, what day? <laughs> you know, when are you going to be here? <laughs> That's amazing. So I was like so relieved. I was like, really? Like you actually will? She's like, yeah, I'm going to go make your bed now. Are you coming tonight or are you coming? When are you, when are you coming? Wow. So, the yeah. But I, I told my parents that I'm going to go move to Toronto. And they were like, huh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. You know that, right? And I was like, um, well, first of all, when I turned 16, I looked up emancipation laws. So I was like, okay, I can technically emancipate myself. I have legal rights in this sense here. Um, I was that stubborn kid that was like going to research everything. Um, so I figured out, okay, I can go to school and I can drop out of school right now because at 16, you can do that without parental consent. So I went to school, got all my transcripts, told the teachers that, hey, look, it's not like I'm leaving school permanently. It's just I'm going to Toronto. And they were like, good luck. So packed it up. My mom saw that I hadn't gone to school for two days. So when she saw that happen, she's like, and the school hasn't called me. What's going on? And I'm like, oh, well, because I really want to go to Toronto. Um, you have to let me go. She's like, well, you have to go to school. I'm like, well, I already dropped out of school. So it's either I stay here and not do anything or I go to Toronto. So within that, that same day, she went to the airport, bought the ticket and I flew off to uh, to Toronto. Uh, what kind of uh, like you you mentioned you had come with your family and it was uh, seeing all those cultures, but what was that original culture shock like? Because obviously, you know, Regina, Saskatchewan, and Toronto are two complete separate worlds. And um, yeah, like, uh, did it take long for you to fit in? And uh, I'm assuming you were helping your aunt along the, at that time, fitting in and stuff like that. So uh, how was that transition like? The transition was, I, I still, to this day, I don't know how I got over it. Like the first four months, I think I cried almost every day. Um, the shock was initially, like with my aunt in, in her house, there was one shock. It's just my parents, they weren't allowing us to speak Arabic in the house weren't allowed to really identify as our culture in the house. So in some ways, Saskatchewan kind of tarnished me because I was pretty much being raised Canadian as Canadian can be. Like they didn't even want us saying a word in it. They changed our name so it sounded more Canadian. So coming here, my aunt refused to call me by any Canadian name. She's like, you were born Amani and that is how it's going to be. And Second rule was like, you're going to speak Arabic in this house. There's no other language. I don't speak English, so that's how it's going to be. So I had to relearn Arabic and just like cultural foods. It was like eating asida, our, our, our traditional foods every day. That was what it was going to be. So I felt like she built a structure for me inside the house where I could actually celebrate my culture. And I now understand why she did that, because going out into Toronto in the city, especially going to school, I did not know there's a difference between Jamaica, you know, St. Vincent. I did not know that even um, a new Sri Lanka existed, but I didn't know there's a huge difference between Pakistan and India. I didn't know there's, you know, Tibet and Nepal. I didn't know all of these things. And I never met a person with that cultural background before. In Saskatchewan, it's just you're white or you're not white. That's how it was. And here it's like, you can offend someone by simply assuming that they're from a certain area because everybody's proud of their culture. I remember first time eating a Jamaican patty. I was like, this food exists. I didn't know that food <laughs> like this exists. I didn't know what a subway car. I, first time, I, first month that I stayed here, I had to learn how to take a subway. We don't have subways in Saskatchewan. So there's me in the subway, like holding on to a pole and like, how do I do this? What am I supposed to do? The train stopped. Do I get off? Do I stay on? Where do I go? So it was a huge culture shock in the sense that like one, I'm being exposed to literally the entire world, but in one city. And I think, like I say, I cried every night, but the crying wasn't necessarily that I was like scared or I was upset or angry. I think a lot of it was just kind of like disappointment that I spent all this time in Saskatchewan learning only one culture and then coming here. And now it's like, I have a whole array of friends from so many different places, different backgrounds, different religions, different mindsets, even different political beliefs, but we can sit in one room and discuss. I just felt like I lost out on the whole world, you know, for 13 years. That's amazing. Uh, where, where in Toronto uh, were you uh, staying at that time? 
Scarborough. Scarborough. Shout yeah, out Scarborough. Scarborough. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good place to yeah. go to get exposed to the world and uh, yes. yeah, and be introduced to a lot of cultures. Definitely very multicultural over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel a, like a part, like obviously when your parents had, had come from Sudan and, you know, trying to submerge themselves within Canadian culture, which a lot of immigrants get lost in, right? It's, mm-hmm. did you feel like they were in a sense trying to protect you? Like now that you can look back at it, like, cause a lot of the time it's, it's more so not that they want to be ashamed of their own culture. It's more so that they don't want to be put in any situation where your culture can, it could be deemed that you're not Canadian enough. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Was Do you feel like any, any stuff like that? I feel like it's 50-50 because I think with them, um, they wanted us to learn the Canadian culture as as much as possible um, so that we could fit in here. But I feel like they also wanted to let go of a little bit of South Sudan because of how terrible it was. Um, I remember being younger, like when I was younger, asking if we're ever going to go back, you know, to South Sudan. Are we ever going to go back to Africa? My dad was like, no. No, just flat out, no, there was no idea of it. So he almost like closed the door for us to even think about going back there. So in a sense, you know, as children, if they say no and you're not supposed to go there, you know, I guess you're like, okay, well, I guess I just have to go here and stick with this culture because there's no other option anyway. So I feel like they were 50-50 on that, but mostly because of just the pain of what was going on back home, losing their whole identity. They built their whole life there you know, thinking they were going to raise children there and then now we're stuck here. So they just wanted us to have just kind of like a good sense here. And then another aspect of it too is like, I think because there was so much racism that my dad was experiencing that he was just hoping that, hey, like, you know, at the end of the day when he comes home, he's like, you guys are going to wind up facing all of that stuff. So if you guys can understand those people, you know, blend in as, as, as best as possible you're going to have less of a hard time than me who can't speak English, has an accent, you know, comes from a different background. So I think that's that's what it was mostly for them. So you moved to Toronto, you came here to do music. Was it difficult or what were some of the challenges you face now trying to record music, trying to get booked for shows? Like what was that journey for yourself now? The journey, um, I, I got fortunate that I got put in uh, SATEC. I don't know if you guys know SATEC at WA Porter um, in uh, Scarborough. So that one, they had a digital music production um, program. So I got put in that program with Mr. Mr. Gladwell. Um, that was kind of like the beginning of how I got into the industry. But then I also learned what the complications of, that I was going to be facing for the next, you know, a little while here. So I'd say like 10, 20 years from, from when I graduated. Um, first thing was that I was the only female in, in pretty much all male class and nobody took me seriously um as a music producer um or as even a recording artist they just assumed that you're just the singer and that's it there's nothing else that you need to do and that kind of prefaced the difficulties that I'm having even to this day certain studios I go into and I will tell them okay uh do you mind uh, bringing out my vocals here can you fade that down can you pan this over here um the reverb is too wet can you drop it down and I'll get men in studios who look at me like you're too demanding can you leave my Mm. studio please and I get I have to leave studios because I'm telling them what I want but because they don't accept that there's a woman who knows what she's doing in the studio that it offends them. So there's there's that aspect. So it's a lot of sexism in that way and just kind of being told that, oh, you're supposed to just be the singer, so just shut up and sing over there and don't don't bother us over here. So there's there was that aspect. Um, in terms of, like, you know, getting booked for shows, I think one of the biggest things was I learned how to do marketing. I learned how to do, you know, set up myself so that I can do things on my own so I get to see everything. Um, and in terms of booking... There is a little bit of a racial thing where when I get booked for shows, a lot of the times it's like, we can only have one black person, you know, on this Mm. whole entire show. And it's like, and we need that person to be R&B. So we're hoping that you're R&B. And it's like, but I'm not R&B, I'm a mixture. So they're like, oh, we needed someone who's more R&B soul. So basically the stereotypical black person role. So I found like 
there was a little bit of issues with race in that sense. And even with recording too, going to a producer and saying, okay, I do pop, uh, a mixture, a mixture of pop, Afrobeat, R&B, reggae. Um, and I just want unique sounds. And they're looking at me like, we just wanted a soul singer or we wanted a gospel singer. And even just sometimes going to like do, doing interviews and telling people, okay, so I do a mixture of music, not just one. And they'll write in my bio, despite me sending them a bio that says specifically what genres I do, they will write down gospel singer Amani Ilfated classic soul artist Amani ill-fated and it's like but I never said that I was that you know so lots of different uh things that happen in the industry that are just kind of complicated annoying but um they balance out because there's a lot of great moments to meet a lot of amazing producers work with a lot of amazing artists you know that are very open-minded like we're working with noise working with satnam it's it's been yeah incredible yeah that, that story you tell it reminds me of um this one this one article so I, I did an interview with uh, with the newspaper, and I think Magic, I've told you this story before. But um, so I did an interview with the newspaper, and you know, me and the writer, we had a really good conversation. We're talking about music, we're talking about um, some of the work, mental health workshops that I do, aside from that. And then, you know, none of the conversation had anything to do with identity or about race or anything like that. It was more so like, this is the music he does. This is the workshops he does. I'm like, okay, cool. This sounds like a really good article. We had a really great conversation. And then the article actually comes out. And in the headline, it just says like, Turban Rapper does such and such. And it's like, <sighs> yeah, it's like, and then I, I, I emailed the writer and I'm just like, you know, it's was, it was one thing if, you, if we actually talked about identity in our conversation, that you want to make that the focus of the headline, that would make a bit more sense. But our conversation was the furthest thing from that. And the fact that, like, she still put that in the headline. So I, I just kind of confronted her on that. And she said, you know, the my my editor felt like that was the hook for the story. It's because you look a certain way and you do a certain type of music. So I, I can definitely feel you and where you're coming from with that as far as, like, mm -hmm. people, like, only pegging you to, to fill a certain role, like, on a bill or for an article. Yeah. Wow. Sorry to hear you had to go through that. That's. Yeah. It's. I mean. Yeah. We 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 talked about it. Um, we we did an episode uh, with our guys from Stay Out Late, and we we're just kind of talking about how unequipped Canadian media is to talk about matters of race, and mm -hmm. that was just like a perfect example of it, at least from my experience. Yeah. Wow. One thing I wanted to ask you is. Um, obviously, a lot of us find our musical identity and we also find out more about ourselves uh, as just being artists. Because as you know, you kind of become an independent label on your own, right? You have to figure out how the, mm -hmm. the marketing works, how the production works. You you got to you got to figure out every aspect. You're you're your own stage manager. You're your own booker uh, uh, up until you get to a certain level, right? Um, mm -hmm. but going back to the whole identity thing, now we are seeing a lot more African artists who are taking the likes of Afropunk becoming such a global sound and having artists like, uh, Wizkid and Burna Boy who are now globally doing crazy numbers. Do you feel like Africa is kind of taking pride in just like... In, in let's showcase our music and be proud of who we are and showcase that to the world because like in a lot of culture and and in in Punjabi culture at least a lot now has been focused on Punjabi rap so like the western mm -hmm. world has kind of overtaking our culture's music and that's the fad right now and it's not much so about having the cultural instruments that we had back in the day. So we have kind of lost our way in the sense of culture, whereas African music has now kind of become very prominent, just sticking to its root. Do you kind of take pride in that? And do you feel like um, like you you want to have as much uh, uh, like African beats and, and, and content within your music just to kind of spread that information? Um... That one's a very, very loaded question. Uh, I, I, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 don't be sorry about it. Because uh, it, it, it's it's really complicated. And I guess maybe I have like a a very 
different opinion about when like the Afrobeat started to come out. Um, if you had asked me maybe three years ago how excited I was about Afrobeat coming out, I would have been like, yes, like through the roof that, you know, Afrobeat has now hit mainstream and it's now like all the artists are, you know, coming out. But um, I started working with uh, with Nadine McNulty um, at uh, Karabuni uh, radio station at CIUTFM. And I remember when I started kind of getting involved with her and started to learn more about the roots of like a lot of the African music, I started to realize over time that actually what we're hearing now that's called Afrobeat isn't actually even Afrobeat. It actually oh, wow. isn't authentically what African music is even about. I heard music from Mali. I heard music from South Africa, Mozambique, from Tanzania, South Sudan, even like original music from South Sudan, you know, from Libya, Tunisia. Once you start to hear that and you start to hear all of the different sounds, Afrobeat actually just sounds like almost, I know this is very, this is probably going to get me in trouble for saying this, but it almost sounds like North America was just trying to imitate what Africa sounds like. Okay. It's only capturing this tiny little glimpse of it, and um, just just listening to like Afro, just the original Afrobeats, um, you know, artist. Listening to not even just like the Sukus, the stuff that I mentioned earlier on. When you listen to all of that, it's just it's not capturing the richness of it. It's not capturing the voices of it. It's just capturing this little tiny little bit. And I find that a lot of the Afrobeat that are coming out are primarily coming out of like the artists that are coming out of Nigeria and Ghana. So it doesn't even count the other, you know, 50, 52 countries that are there too. So I feel like it's almost the same thing of what's happening in, with, with what you mentioned um, in your country. It's, it's like America just kind of came over, took what it liked and then called it Afrobeat and called it something that's, that's theirs. Or they went in and they penetrated and added their flair to everything inside the country. So now, I mean, yeah, we're listening to rap music from Kenya, from Uganda, from, you know, South Sudan. You're listening to it there and it's like, but this isn't really what this culture here is about. We didn't really have hip hop. We had our own thing that was actually just almost the equivalent of hip hop there and now it's like now the americans have taken over everything in a way like sorry to get political about it but no I just, no that yeah, th yeah. see this is the thing now now i have learned something so in a sense it's been watered down to appease the west yeah okay yeah. and i think the same right. thing happened to even uh like uh, latino music too same thing happened with, with them yeah. like now reggaeton is like whenever you think of latin america you think reggaeton that's it Reggaeton, yeah. reggaeton, daddy yankee, this and that. And then you think that this is what it actually is. But then um, for me, like I, 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 the only reason I know that, that that's a lot different than what it is, is meeting people originally from there, you know, and asking them, okay, so what did you grow up listening to? What is your music? Like people my age, you know, what were you listening to five years ago? And when you see their playlist, you're like, there's no reggaeton in this playlist. What do you mean? Why isn't there? And they'll explain to you, like, this isn't what we're all about. You know, when the Latin, uh, the you know, I, I don't know if you remember a couple of, not even too long ago, maybe six, seven years ago, um, Latin music took over the whole charts. Now every Latin artist is on there and then it just kind of fades out. Now it's all the African artists. Wizkid is all, all on there and it's going to fade out. And then mm -hmm. who knows, was, it was K-pop. K-pop suddenly came over here and then now that's fading out. So I feel like they just almost make countries trends here yeah. and they just water it down and then it loses its actual meaning and its culture and its richness. Yeah. Um, Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. Now, yeah. Your, your performances incorporate a lot. So it's not just, you know, you with a backing track. I guess, how did you develop your, your performance style? Um, it's kind of unconventional the way I, I developed it. Um, I laugh just because sometimes it, it doesn't make sense to people. When I explain, it makes sense to me. But when I explain to other people, it's like difficult. So the best way to explain it is that maybe 10 years ago when I started performing, I was extremely shy extremely nervous. I felt like I had to be so calculated and had to say everything at the right moment. One of my first performances ever in Toronto, I cried on stage 
because I got so nervous. I just started crying and I was like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, I had to leave the stage. And that was the end of the show, like midway through one song. Um, So I've always been working on building the performances. So I met uh, Tom Jackson in Nashville. uh, Sorry, not Nashville, Chicago. um, I think it was 2016. And he wound up explaining that something that blew my mind is like when you do your live performance it should be like literally everything you are it should be about building moments with with the audience and you know creating an experience where they feel involved and you feel involved and you guys are all just kind of like vibing in the same room so I took that into account and I decided that the way I'm going to look at a stage from now on is not just a stage and you know at this second of the song I should be hitting this move and moving like that but to look at it more like you know, we're in a dome together, me and the audience. There's no separation between what the stage is and what, you know, where the audience is seated and just treat the audience like I'm just chilling in this room with, you know, 200 people. It's okay. You know, I know all of them, you know, look at them in a way like, hey, I'm singing this song to you and just kind of like let it flow naturally, like be in my own space, almost as if I'm in my room just hanging out and let it loose, not be so precise, not worry if I hit the wrong note or if I stumble, fall, or if I had a wardrobe malfunction, just let it happen and just be as natural as possible in that dome with the with the audience. Yeah, performance is one of those things that's hard to build. Like mm-hmm. I feel like of all the of all the the talents that an artist needs, I feel like the stage and the performance is probably the most challenging one to develop and get to a level of comfort um because i feel like for at least for me i don't know if if you guys feel the same way but it's like if i'm doing a show and i mess something up that's gonna stick with me until i can get back on stage the next time yeah yeah and i want to try to fix that before um like rehearse like 10 times harder so i don't make that same mistake next time i go out there yeah, we we end up being our own biggest critiques, right? So even like yeah. you know, no, noise always used to tell me this because uh, like you know I would forget a lyric here and there, right? And he'd be like, just just oh, play yeah. it off, like no nobody's gonna know, right? And it it's the truth, like literally, so many times I've messed something up and like I'm like beating myself up about it, and then so and so in the crowd, I'll be like, yo, like did you realize I I messed up on this song? They're like, yo, it was amazing <laughs> to us, right? And that and that's yeah, the they- thing, right? you have to let go and just go out there and just be a professional right like if you if you really want to do this shit you gotta you kind of gotta just go out there and be the best you can be and just blips are gonna happen it, we're, we are all human right but it's 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 just it's just about like you said it's just creating an experience all those people are within that bubble with you and you kind of owe it to them to have a have a good time with them or to for them to at least feel the energy that you're putting out into this room right and it's yeah. uh it, like noise said it's 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 uh, to me i believe it's the hardest skill to get good at as an artist right because it's yeah. the, the there's a whole ten thousand hours things and it it's yeah to to write music in your own room and to to record music you're doing it in front of it, you're just doing it for yourself to practice. Yeah, you can practice in a mirror and you can you can practice your whole stage show. But then when you're out there and all of a sudden you're making eye contact with somebody and they're lost with uh, they're literally paying attention to every word you're saying. It's like it's crazy. And it's like you can have any thought in the back of your mind while this is going on rather than thinking about what you're supposed to be doing. So yeah. it's like. It, I don't know. I found it for me. It was like me and noise have been blessed enough to to have more and more shows every year and it, like it, it was a long run for us to get to the point where we where we are now and l- luckily we've touched a lot of stages with a with with a lot of people in the room and through that we kind of built this 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 set that we still performing till this day that is still like to me it feels like so perfect and flawless but it's forever being built on right and it's yeah. i feel like it's it's very important for uh for stage presence to constantly be growing. Exactly. And to, to add to that, there's one piece of advice that I got. Um, I think it was from Tom Jackson that, you know, in your friendships with people, you make mistakes with them, right? And they still forgive you and you actually 
sometimes have a stronger relationship because of the mistakes that you make with the with your friends or when they see you at a most vulnerable position or they see you in a way that maybe you're a little bit embarrassed by. So what was told is that, you know, the audience is the same way. So sometimes that little mess up, I mean, you think that it's mortifying. Like for me, I'll be like thinking about it forever. But actually, that's what makes the audience get closer to you because they're like, oh, we shared a moment like that, you know. You know, I, I saw this moment where, you know, the voice cracked, but you know what? It was, it's fine because we all make mistakes and you build, you know, it's only the critics that really care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you show, you show a sense of vulnerability and we, as, yeah. as humans, we are all vulnerable, right? Exactly. And you build relationships off of vulnerability, not off of being strong all the time. Right. For sure. Yeah. Dope. Yeah. I think we are getting close to the end here. Um, just want to thank you for, for making the time out to join us. Uh, just before we wrap up, though, we like to conclude each episode by having everybody on the show uh, name one thing that they're grateful for within this moment. It could be an object that you're grateful for or a person that you're grateful for, just any sort of energy uh, that you would like to honor today. Ooh, okay. Um, I guess just off the top of my head, um, I'm grateful for the amazing people that I have in my life. Um you know, the, the whole pandemic, it's just been absolute chaos, nonstop chaos, nonstop problem after problem after problem. And um, a lot of the things uh, at the beginning of the year, I was always telling myself, like, I have to be stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, but it was like all independently, like I should personally just be strong by myself. But what I learned is that with this pandemic, it's like the people around you are truly the supporters of your strength. So uh yeah I'm grateful for them to be in my life nice yeah i think just along those lines too you mentioned it um a couple minutes ago where it's important to have people where you can be vulnerable with mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm grateful for those friends that i do have where i can be open and totally vulnerable with and i don't have a lot of those friends but the ones that i do have i feel like those are my go-to's and i can talk about good times bad times you know family troubles issues with mental health like whatever the case is and you know those are those are like the those are the forever bonds that you have in your life and those are the ones that you know you're not going to let any sort of small like disagreement kind of get in the way of it it's like Mm -hmm. you work through it and then you just come out stronger at the end of it so yeah it's it's a very it's a it's a small group of people that I have as far as like people that I can be entirely open and honest and vulnerable with but I'm, I'm really grateful that I have them in my corner very well said um yeah just uh just just to touch on that like it's 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 very easy to be having fun and partying with people and you know we all have friends who yeah we can have go have a good time with but uh to have friends where you can you can be vulnerable as you said and to like actually have real life discussions and and you know be be able to to show a side that we aren't always so comfortable talking about it is it is you know i i i hope that a lot of people find those one two people because in your friends group you're you're gonna have certain people you can have good times with and then there's certain people who who are your ride or dies right it's just the way it is right and uh yeah, salute to those people. They're very special, man. Um, what am I thankful for this week? Um, I probably should have thought about this, but <laughs> um, I am thankful for. I, I say it all the time, uh, but family. Um, you know, my my parents just coming back after five months of just they were in India and then in uh, in Norway with my brother, and then now being back, and they had to spend fourteen days in quarantine. They did a fourteen day quarantine in Norway before they came here, oh so it's gosh. like they're, they're kind of exhausted of just being in a room, just uh, watching <laughs> movies. So, you know, uh, the last the last uh, week they have finally been out and, you know, all the the gardening and housework that needed to be done like early on in the spring kind of got postponed and it got done this week. And uh, it's just been me, my wife, my 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 mom and my dad outside in the yard working together, phones away and just, you know, just it, it feels amazing to do that. And 
another thing that I'm very thankful is like, you know, my people, people always call me like, well, my mom likes to say you're exactly like your father. Right. And a, <laughs> a, a, a lot of that is to do with our mannerisms. But but uh, one thing that I do take pride in is my dad has always been very typical immigrant dad in the sense of, you know, we never had the money to go to the mechanic sometimes or we didn't have a money for a plumber sometimes. So my dad is kind of a jack of all trades in the sense of mm-hmm. he had to be a mechanic at times. He had to be a plumber at times. He had to, you know, make the basement himself sometimes. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, the the greatest thing that I take pride in is that I, I kind of got a little bit of that as well. So it's like, you know, like uh, I work in the electrical field, but then, you know, we our fence mm-hmm. fell down. I had to just figure out how to create a <laughs> fence and. You know, it's like I kind of take after my dad in that sense and not just the mannerism. So I'm thankful that, uh, you know, I uh, I'm a very hands on kind of guy. So uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm thankful for uh, for the OG for that instilling that in me. Yeah, that's awesome. Jack of all trades, too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't build a studio at age 12, so you might have me beat there, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty decent at housework, at least. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amani, how can people connect with you online? Um, yeah, so you can connect with me on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, using the handle Amani Ilfated. So it's A-M-A-N-I-E. I-L-L-F-A-T-E-D. Um, you can always send me an email too. Um, you can just check out my website, www.amaniilfated.com if you need to send an email, uh, any questions, and we're usually pretty open to, to answering questions. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you for taking the time to sit and talk with us during these uh, times, and uh, we really appreciated it. And, you know, I, I learned a lot today. I'm sure Noise learned a lot. And uh, <laughs> you have two people here in Brampton who are rooting for you. And hopefully we get oh. to make music together. I know you and Noise have made music. Hopefully we yes. all get to make some more music once this all dies down. And all the power <laughs> to you and good luck to you. And we will talk again. Hopefully we get to do another episode. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for having me. So blessed to have you guys in my life. No problem. And this has been another episode of the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. Okay.